Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Fueled by the outdoors, your source for hunting, fishing, archery, and all things outdoors. Brought to you by the Elite Outdoors. Welcome to Fueled by the Outdoors, brought to you by the Elite Outdoors. I'm your host, Rick Cates, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Chris Leppert. What's up, guys? And my dad, uh, Richard Cates. How you doing? Good, good. Glad we could all sit down today. Oh, yeah. uh, just taking care of some things before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast. Uh, like all listeners, uh, we are now on all major podcasting platforms. That includes iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, I believe Google Play Music, as well as Anchor.fm uh, and CastBox. So if you like what you're hearing, go hit subscribe and mark five stars. You know, that helps us out just in terms of our ability to, you know, spread our knowledge around and things along those lines. So um, today's podcast, we're going to be talking turkey, mainly turkey uh, hunting in the Midwest. So, uh, Chris, what what things have you kind of been doing to prepare uh, for the season coming up? And then we'll kind of go around and each talk a little bit about preparations and things along those lines. Yeah. So I've uh, been doing a lot of crying. Um, <laughs> we've, uh, we've, we, we should have been Turkey hunting a month ago, as you guys know, but uh, COVID had to kill our plans, but uh, I've been practicing. So we just recently partnered with Woodhaven custom calls and I've been learning how to use a mouth call. Um, I also have one of their slates, and I've been playing with it a lot. Uh, another thing I've been trying to do is walking. Um, I think that gets overlooked. Uh, everybody's worried about the latest and greatest calls, choke tubes, tungsten super shot, all that. And that's all well and good. But if you are a guy who loves to troll for turkeys on public land, um, you'd better be ready to walk. So I've been walking, um, doing a little bit of leg, leg exercises. And uh, I've also gotten into the tungsten super shot realm, uh, or TSS, as most people uh, would call it. And um, we put a scope on my gun, and we've actually dove into shooting number sevens and number nines. And a duplex load of seven and nine, and uh, they're nothing short of incredible. Um, as most people understand, I like to, uh, you know, get them close, but uh, this is one way to prep yourself, you know, for the farmland bird or whatever that uh, hangs up out there on you. You can you can bust him and fold him at a longer yardage. So, um, but duplex load, duplex load meaning both uh, shot sizes. Yeah, so you have basically your large and your small shot in there, and what that does is uh, kind of creates like a buffer to help you hold a tighter pattern, but it also helps your pellet count because with a TSS uh, 18cc, I I want to say um, like a number a number nine shot in the 18cc is equivalent to like a number five shot or something along those lines. So um, you're getting the heavy hitting of that number five, but the pellet count 
of the number nine. So when you mix in the sevens and nines, um, you get a high pellet count, but you still get uh, a serious payload. And that's only, we're only running a one and five eighths ounce load in a three inch shell. Um, so there's, there's a lot more room to grow and, you know, even extend yardage or, or what have you. So. Good deal. Good deal. It sounds like it'll be really neat to try out and see. Mm -hmm. uh, Dad, what are you doing to prepare yourself uh, for turkey season? <laughs> <laughs> lots of scouting and lots of walking. Um, doing probably three to four miles a day right now. Um, I can have the luxury of being able to wander out the back door and have some pretty open areas to myself. So uh, that's a, that's a really good thing, particularly given the current circumstances of social distancing mm -hmm. uh, have also made multiple scouting trips um, to some far away public ground <laughs> and uh, have been doing the early morning thing already. So rolling out of bed at uh, quarter after four to be down there to listen to them do their goblin thing. And uh, it's happening right now. Man, yeah, they're they're, they're hammered pretty hard. And at least when I went out and scouted this past weekend, um, I think I sent the video to you, Chris. I think I had like four to five birds and I jumped a hen on the way out of the place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, Rich, you bring up getting out of bed. That's, that's just as much conditioning in my opinion as the walking, uh, being able to get your butt out of bed and be ready for that. Cause it's, it's tough. <laughs> it is. And it gets, it gets real tough after the end of that first week. Oh yeah. <laughs> Getting up every day during the week. If you've had, if you have the luxury of taking it off four o'clock in the morning and going really takes your toll, especially if you don't have the luxury of coming home and taking a nap because uh, you've got two kids who want you to play or anything along those lines, or you've got to mow the lawn or a number of other uh, household activities that we all normally have to take care of on a day-to-day -day basis. Or maybe you're retired. You want to crappie fish all afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Exactly. When the red buds are blooming and the turkeys are gobbling, it also means that there's crappies to be had. That oh, is yeah. true. Good deal. So I, I kind of want to get into your, you know, if you'll give us a short bio of <clears throat> the history of your hunting experience, dad in Ohio, I know you, you know, you didn't do a whole lot of hunting when you were real little, when you were <clears throat> in California or when you first got to Ohio, but you, if you could kind of give like a timeline of when you started hunting, what your experiencing experience is, as well as when you really started getting into uh, the largest game bird in the United States. Yeah. Good deal. I, um, I started college at Ohio state in 73 and, um, uh, I ran into a guy who uh, shared a passion for hunting that I had, and he introduced me to the world of turkey hunting. So beginning spring of 74 would have been the first season that I took part in. Uh, his dad was a retired uh, Cleveland copper, and uh, we ended up heading over to Tar Hollow State Forest. In those days, uh, basically the state of Ohio um, didn't have the number of birds that it obviously has now. Uh, they were still in the trap and release phase. Uh, they just gotten out of trading, uh, birds with some of the other States. And so you basically had, uh, Hocking Hills, you had, uh, Raccoon State Forest, Zaleski, and then either Shawnee or Tar Hollow. And, uh, Tar Hollow seemed to work real good for us. Um, so, we went down not really knowing a whole lot about what we were about. Um, the other interesting thing in those days, because it was new to Ohio, you couldn't find a call anywhere. Um, <laughs> so I went, I went into the back of a, an old Turkey call magazine and found an ad for a, uh, Davy Bracken cedar box call <laughs> and, uh, proceeded to put my money in the mail and hear, so many weeks later arrives this box call, which I had no idea how to, how to use. And, uh, so a couple of buds and I went down to, uh, Locust Ridge in Tar Hollow and cranked on that box call. It sounded like a bunch of wounded cats fighting in the backyard, <laughs> but
but somehow <laughs> miraculously on an 80 degree March day, we had a return response from a big old gobbler and all three of us looked at each other and immediately hit the ground. We're standing there in street clothes, um, not really expecting that we were going to call anything. And within a couple minutes up over the hill strutted the first wild turkey I'd ever seen in my life. And he proceeded to come up and put on quite a show for a couple of minutes, got tired of us and then turned around and left. And uh, we talked about that for months and ultimately that ended up uh, lighting the fire so far as, as my history of turkey hunting. Wow. That's amazing. So, I mean, so not, not knowing anything about it to going to trying to find <clears throat> equipment, which again, back then, it, it was incredible. Not I even mean, being able to find, I it. mean, to, to, to try to find a diaphragm call back then, they, they, they were just non-existent. So we took to making our own, um, we would take an old Mountain Dew can and cut the aluminum out and get a piece of latex lay it in there and then take some adhesive tape, uh, form the outer bands of it. And you had basically a homemade diaphragm call. Wow. So wow. I had a, uh, uh, Tom Turpin Yelper in that Davy Bracken box call. And, uh, that's what I proceeded to hunt the first year with. Now in those days, because they only had a limited amount of birds on the ground, uh, the state of Ohio greatly limited the permits uh, that you were allowed to have. So you actually had to apply through the mail uh, to be one of the lucky 1,000 at that time to be drawn to even have an opportunity to chase after them. And a successful season for us was if you heard a bird, that was pretty successful uh, because the, the harvest rates back then you know, that might've been, maybe they were killing 50 birds total a year. Oh, wow. And, uh, so, so it was pretty slim pickings and, um, obviously the success of the program was greatly expanded when the state went from, uh, doing stockings from other states, they would trade for birds to actually trapping birds within our own state and relocating them. And uh, Chris, you'll probably find this interesting because I know that you hunt down in uh, Scioto County on occasion, but um, it's interesting to note that the state of Ohio actually at one point in time stocked Osceola's in Lawrence County wow. and they stocked Rio's in Scioto County. Now this was probably early sixties, maybe. Um, and uh, obviously none of them ever took and they, they ended up having to to rely on the Easterns, uh, to build a population in Ohio. But, uh, by the time we got into probably the late eighties, early nineties, the number of birds was just phenomenal. Uh, mother nature does her thing where, uh, you know, that void gets filled and actually almost to the point of overpopulated, uh, with turkeys. And that's exactly what happened in Ohio. I agree, man. That is that is a really cool fact, actually. Uh, and, you know, it's funny just watching the birds out by us in Fayetteville and Blanchester and everything. When I was in high school, you, you didn't really see them. Uh, and now you see them all the time. They're, they're very magnificent creatures that, uh, you know, seem to populate pretty well. But their, their populations do seem to fluctuate pretty much from uh, year to year. I, I would agree. I've, I've always thought that uh, weather played a really, really big factor in that. The real wet springs, it would occur to me that the following years, you just simply didn't have the number of young on the ground uh, from the previous years. And, you know, whether that's a factor of, of the nest being washed out or the young getting too cold after they hatched or whatever. But um, once you do get a boom year where you put a lot of birds out of the nest on the ground, uh, the years following that, you know, the four or five years to follow uh, are really, really some phenomenal times. And I know when I first started getting my boys into hunting, um, Rick, I remember one time with you taking you down to Doc Moore's. Yeah. And uh, 
<laughs> we uh, we pulled into a field that we'd never really been on. We heard some birds gobbling and proceeded to get set up. And it, it was like hunting in Disney World. There was deer walking back and forth and turkeys m- meandering in and out of them. And uh, he actually had to hold his shot on the bird that he wanted until everybody else got out of the scene, so to speak. Uh, so those, those definitely were some, uh, were some wonderful days. And, uh, right now certainly are some wonderful days so far as population numbers go. Wow. Exactly. I mean, I can, I can remember that really well in terms of, I mean, docs was a, a completely different animal in terms of any place that I'd ever been to, but you walk in and there's just tons and tons and tons of birds. And not that you can't find those, you know, out out in places now but that place i can't think of how many times where you had to wait because there are too many birds in the field for you to even make a decent shot at a bird yeah it was ridiculous we had a period there um and i I can't remember exactly the year but uh i i took you and your brother in the same week and between the four of us, I, I think I remember we, we, uh, or between the three of us, mm-hmm. we ended up harvesting mm-hmm. four birds that weighed close to 90 pounds between them in the span Beautiful. of five days. So, um, those, those definitely were some wonderful times. Wow. Absolutely. That's impressive. So, so, I mean, with, with regards to like how, you get prepared for turkey season. Like we went over the scouting end of it where you're going out early in the morning, you listen for birds gobbling, you're trying to, you know, find out where they're at on a roost and you're wanting to find like the best area for a fly down. You know, I mean, I think every turkey hunter in the world thinks that they know exactly where the birds are going to fly. Realistically, there's a 13% chance that they're going to fly down in front of you. They're going to fly down the opposite. (laughs) They're going to fly down the opposite every time. (laughs) <laughs> every time where you think that those birds are going to be they're they're not going they're not going to be there but you know sometimes you strike uh sometimes you strike gold so what what is a typical turkey setup look like for you wow um a, a lot of how i set up depends on where i'm hunting in uh and i kind of look at ohio as being uh two distinct regions, one being farm ground and one being big woods. Yes. And uh, if you're hunting big woods, it's an entirely different thing to me. And this is my opinion. Um, but uh, I, I am more content there to pretty much wander into the woods, listen for birds, and then try to strike an area that I'm going to set up on, depending upon what I run into. I find myself on farm ground uh, because of the ability to visually see birds, uh, as Chris was talking about driving around, you know, a lot of the locations where those birds are hanging out, you can pretty much pattern them in a lot of, uh, different areas. And I kind of tend to probably be, uh, content to sit a little bit more, um, on farm ground than I do in the big woods where I really like to run and gun. I don't, what's your thoughts on that, Chris? Well, I, I couldn't agree more. So, you know, it's funny to hear somebody else say that because in the in the big woods, um, you literally, you don't need a blind. You don't need decoys. You need a gun and a call, and you just walk out and listen. And one of my favorite things about that is I don't really care if I don't get them on the fly down because I know if I just keep walking and, and calling, or as I call it, I call it trolling, um, if you just keep walking and and just trying to strike a gobble, um, you're going to get into them eventually. On farmland, it's almost the opposite. A blind, decoys, and probably no calls uh, is my way to go, and scouting there is so incredibly huge. I've been able to kind of pattern birds in the big woods before and kind of figure out the general direction they'll go to fly down for the most part, because they do have uh, in certain areas, anyway, they have pretty distinct strut zones on ridge tops and stuff, uh, little saddles and benches and everything. But um, farmland birds, I a couple years back, um, I won't mention the name of the farm, but you guys know 
the name of the farm that I'm going to refer to that is very close to you. Um, my father-in-law wanted to try to hunt another part of that farm, and so I sent him to scout it. And he comes back, and you know he never heard a bird and everything. And I thought, man, how's there how's there birds here? But there's none over there. So we went over there, and I strike a gobble, and sure enough, we come back the next morning. This was a Saturday. We come back Sunday morning, and that bird was roosted down in the corner, right over the creek, and he flew down, and he went to a very, very specific location where, for some reason, somebody had tilled up like a 50 by 20 foot spot. So everything else was a bunch of wet, dewy weeds and cover crop and all that, and this was bare. So as a, a turkey hunter, you know, he's he's going over there to dry off and strut, and he would strut around. It looked like somebody's garden, basically, and he'd strut around in there. And I found that farmland birds are extremely, extremely particular in where they like to be and the direction they go, and you can almost ambush them easier than you can call them because they just stand at 400 yards and look at you and decide that they don't really care. And then they just walk off. But <laughs> this year, I, this I, year, I agree with that. I, uh, to me, they are pretty much creatures of habit, uh, yes. until they get pressured. But, um, uh, if unpressured, uh, if there's a group of three big gobblers walking through the barnyard gate every morning at nine o'clock, they're going to continue to do it mm -hmm. until somebody interrupts that, that pattern. Yeah. And, uh, so they, they do have very specific areas that they like to go. Um, the woods, I guess <clears throat> the way that I've always looked at that is, is, uh, it's, it's almost a freedom of being able to get up and move around for me because mm -hmm. that's the way I learned uh, to turkey hunt. I was, I was self-taught. I was really never around anybody that had done it. And so we had to cover ground back in those days. And I, and I really grew fond of that. But what I found is when I tried to bring that tactic of walking and calling onto some of the favorite farm grounds that I now have, um, <clears throat> the tendency to, to bump birds or to move them off of the ground, which tends to be smaller, uh, you, you run a real high risk of doing that. So I agree with you sitting in a blind or with your back against a tree in a particular area and, and waiting for something to happen is probably the more viable tactic there. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say like, <clears throat> since I've moved to Kentucky, I mean, my experience I think I've only had permission really on one farm down here and that farm's now gone. But every time that I had <clears throat> put a blind up and just sat there and thought, you know, turkeys are going to come through here. I could never get them to come through there. And I was like, why, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Well, you know, little do I know 200 yards to my right on the other side of the woods, there's a little cul-de-sac area and these birds are just, strutting in there the entire time and of course the landowner comes back every day i got a bird not every day but like <laughs> the two birds that he's allowed um and and i was like why why is this not happening because the, the the bulk of my activity when i was younger at least from from my recollection of them dock going to docks was going to zaleski running and gunning walking through big woods and calling or wait until you hear a gobble to get a shot gobble and then doing that. Now, since moving down here, I hunt a lot of public land for turkeys. In fact, I believe that that's all I've really hunted since that farm has been gone. <clears throat> and, you know, it's easy for me to go on there and, you know, say, I'm going to go, I'm going to see a bird today. And you go out there and you think that this is going to be simple. It's going to be fine. You go out there and you get your rear end handed to you almost every time you do it because birds are smart. Birds are smarter in big woods on public land, I feel, than they are in farmland. While they might be very typical on those areas, they're very, very particular about how they're going to walk through big woods. And nine times out of ten, it isn't a gobbler that busts me. It's a hen that walks up behind me. I mean, last year I'm on a logging road and I'm calling because I heard a gobble. I'm calling, I'm calling. I'm like, I know there's a bird here. 
I turn around and I, I'm kidding you not, 10 yards behind me, there's a hen staring at me. And just, prick, prick, and then off she flies, and there goes the gobbler that I was trying to get to come to me uh, with her just flying away. It's like, well, this is great. Uh, but public land birds, you know, compared to the farmland birds of, of really my youth, of when you used to take us out on some of those places that you have permission on, two completely different animals. And what I'm finding equally um, hard to figure out are public land birds in Ohio versus Kentucky birds, at least from my perspective, are very different. Now, obviously, I hunted them years apart. And I mean, I can remember the time we went to Zaleski in a driving rain and had turkey camp. <laughs> um, by the way, the best breakfast for hunting turkeys in the morning still is a Hostess chocolate donut uh, and a can of Mountain Dew. A warm, it, can, a of warm can of Mountain Dew. It's also called heartburn for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> but walking through the big woods up there and then shooting and missing, because I still remember that bird coming over the hill there. But here, I'll call, they'll answer. They'll get hung up at 100 yards almost every time. And then it's just, are you going to wait or are you going to try to sneak around the backside of it and try to figure that bird out just a little bit differently. At least as I've gotten older, that's been my experience. Yeah, I'll, I, I tell you what, man. Um, what's funny and what I'm really excited about is when we hook up next weekend, um, I can't say enough how much having a buddy to drop back and call really helps. When you sit there mm -hmm. and you call mm -hmm. from the same spot, um, for whatever reason, I, I'm not even going to give them credit for being uh, you know, a superior intelligence or anything, but there's something there that makes them not come in, whatever that is, their instinct, whatever you want to call it. Um, they'll stand there and strut. And I've had birds that would gobble and gobble and never come in. And so I'd get impatient. I'd be like, well, I'm just going to sneak up on you and blow your head off. <laughs> and I'd go and the bird would be nowhere to be found. And then I'd walk 80 yards back the other way. And off he fires again. So not having a buddy to help me out, I would call and then I'd sprint 60 yards, call again, sprint 40 yards or whatever, call again, and then sprint all the way back to where I first called. And I've done that a couple of times and on one, it's worked multiple times, but on one occasion, I had this big old bird come running like I had just sat down and he comes running through and you could almost hear, uh, you could read his body language and hear in his voice, um, like the anxiety. Uh, it was kind of a whining purr or whatever, where he was just kind of worried, like, oh my God, she's leaving. Um, so it, it really helps to have somebody to drop back and call. And the other thing with those hill country birds, um, anytime you, you incorporate terrain, if you're not up high, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you're um, Amen to that. If, yeah, if you're exactly. looking up, then you have already set yourself up for failure. And I've learned that in the worst ways where he just stands above you just screaming. And then no matter what you did, said, whatever, he just walks away because he, he has the best eyesight in the woods pretty much. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm super fired up to, to hook up with you and hunt down there because in my opinion, I – think that it's harder to hunt farmland birds than it is the woodland birds simply because, um, and again, you know, my, my farms that I have, uh, they're small. They're, you know, you got a fence row or a wood line or something. So not only are you limited by a property line, but you have no cover. In, in the big woods, I can run around. I can go full circle around the turkey on the top of a hill mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. it never spook him. But out there in the farmland, you're screwed. You're, you're sitting where you're sitting for the most part. You can jockey around a little bit, but for the most part, you're there and you're there for the morning. So, uh, and that to me, while I enjoy that success, I much prefer the run and gun style as I think most people do. Um, but it comes with its downsides too. You know, you can, when you go on those farmland hunts, you're pretty much guaranteed to see birds. Um, that's not so in the, the thick woods of Ohio and Kentucky. So exactly, exactly. And, and I, I mean, I would tend to agree. I mean, that's how kind of you taught us is run and gun. I mean, as you 
said, that's kind of how you taught yourself. And I mean, to me, that makes it that much more fun um, <clears throat> calling, answering, you know, we, we don't, I mean, well, you guys don't have elk. We have elk, <laughs> but um, rub it in. Uh, rub it in. <laughs> maybe one day. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 it's the closest thing that I think a Midwesterner gets to doing something like that is running through the woods, calling, trying to get, uh, you know, an answer back in a lot of respects at the same time, you know, it makes it tough depending upon what your, what your setup is. So, you know, you know, kind of circling back to what we said, you know, a typical Turkey setup for me is, you know, a vest shells gun, um, you know, obviously turkey loads. You don't want to be shooting them with like <laughs> dove loads or something like that. Um, Speaking of which, yeah. my early days, my my very first bird that I ever finally came to harvesting was shot with a load of high brass fives out of a Remington 870 with a 28 inch modified barrel. Wow, that's what I had. I had one gun. And that was it. There was, there was no turkey guns in those days. And, uh, I learned later on after, a after a buddy ended up loaning me a, an old Marlin goose gun with a, <laughs> with an extra full choke on it, that, uh, there was a distinct advantage to having, uh, a little bit more, or I guess gear tailored a yeah. little bit more towards, uh, uh, the actual hunting experience with turkeys. But, um, Chris, going back to what you had talked about earlier is <clears throat> with this calling thing, you're, we're, we're actually trying to re uh, re-engineer, uh, how mother nature has this process set up mm -hmm. is that the gobbler's gobbling because he's calling the hens to him. Yep. And we, on the other hand, now are forced because of being seen in the woods to sit in one area as a hen and try to get this bird to do something that naturally he's not really inclined to do. And so if, if you keep that in mind <clears throat> during the, the process, then it makes perfect sense that when that hen turns to walk away or angles one way or the other is that uh, he's, he's obviously is going to get a little bit nervous and, and maybe think that, that she's going away from him. So, yep. uh, so that is a very effective tactic. So what do you think if, if you could pinpoint one, one thing, what would you say helps somebody kill more turkeys, uh, than anything? Wow. Uh, one thing I, I would be hard, hard pressed. Obviously the first and foremost, you gotta hunt where they are. And to yep. me, that's where the scouting in comes in. Uh, knowing your property or at least having a good idea of the property and where birds like to frequent uh, things that you actually control once you're there um, just get a call that you're comfortable working and I don't care what kind it is um, I've heard some of the worst calls in the world coming from the woods and the next thing I know here comes a live hen making that call and, and I'm thinking <laughs> there's no way that this is not another hunter, you know, coming here. But uh, just as people have different voices, different inflections, uh, turkeys do the same thing. So no matter whether you're uh, using a, a slate or a box or a diaphragm or whatever, get familiar with it, learn to make those simple three yelps. And uh, there's probably been more birds killed that way than, than anything else. So, just being familiar with that, with that call and, and having confidence that in fact it is going to work. Yeah. Um, that, that's a, that's a big plus to me. Yeah. To touch on what you said just a second ago too. Um, <laughs> when you talked about uh, hearing the crappy caller and it turns out to be a hen, the worst, yep. the worst thing that can happen. Well, not the worst, but an even funnier thing that happens is when you hear that crappy turkey caller and you're sitting there and you're like, man, you know, I should go show that guy about that time here. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes out with a, a big old beard and a fan, you know, and you're like, maybe he should show me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that, I think that's, you know, part of the cool thing about turkey hunting is you can be a first year hunter 
and be learning how to do it. And you still have a fairly decent chance of, you know, harvesting an animal I mean, or at least calling one in or something like that. You know, deer hunting is a little bit different. I mean, you could sit in a deer stand for three weeks straight on a game trail and you might not see a deer with with turkey hunting. If if you get somewhat decent with a call, you're probably going to get at least an answer back. You know, I, I think I forced myself two years ago, and this is a problem that a lot of guys have with guys and gals have with mouth calls is you gag or it doesn't fit right or things like that. I forced myself to learn how to use a call and I felt so much better after I had learned how to do it. And realistically it was driving to work and then driving back. And it's not a full half hour. It's two minutes here, two minutes there figuring out how it fits in your mouth, how it does all these different things, and then being able to utilize that as another tool in terms of a box call with it or a slate call. So a gobbler thinks you have a couple of hens in an area or something like that. Or the other side of it, you get a hen riled up that's got a gobbler with her and you're mimicking her noises and you might have a mouth call that would do better than that than a slate call or a box call or a you know, a push box call or what, whatever, you know, things that they make out there now, but. Well, you, you hit on a real good point there with, uh, you know, we always hear during the season, oh, the, the gobblers are all henned up and, uh, you know, they're, I, I couldn't get that, you know, that gobbler to come in because, uh, the hen came, you know, this way or that way. And that, that is going to happen. But one of the things I found over the years is if you take the time to call to that hen, and basically mimic everything that she does, particularly if she's a big boss hen and she's in a field with a gobbler or a couple gobblers. Um, if you can get her upset enough to come looking for you many times, she will have the bird that you are legally allowed to harvest in tow right behind her. So that's a, that's a, a viable tactic to use. Mm-hmm. I had that happen last year on public land down here. I set up, I uh, got to a top of a ridge and I heard a hen and a gobbler <clears throat> And I got hunkered in behind a tree and I just kept calling at this hen. I think I probably did it for 30 minutes because I could hear the gobbler behind her. Um, the hen came seven yards in front of me. The gobbler was 30 yards behind me at that point. They split and walked around me on the ridge top, unfortunately. But, you know, reality being is that you can try so many different things. And turkey hunting is really... <sighs> You can get in your own head real easily turkey hunting versus deer hunting or small game hunting or any of that kind of stuff because you can talk yourself into some goofy things um, or you can talk yourself out of some things that sound real goofy but you know will work. I had a buddy uh, who went out last year in, I think, Sabinosa Wilderness area and killed his first bird. And he literally went out there. He saw some other guys. He plunked down next to a tree. They shot, and then all the birds ran over to him. And then he blasted his bird. (laughs) And he, I mean, he, I mean, this is, I think, first day out, literally. And he takes down a real nice uh, gobbler his first year out there. Uh, So, you know, kudos to him for doing that. But I think we've all had those experiences where, we think something's not going to work and then it ends up, you know, working beautifully. And, you know, hopefully that happens next weekend when Kentucky comes in, I, you know, fingers crossed on my end, at least. <laughs> oh yeah. You, you don't know what you're in for, man. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> Good deal. Good deal. So, you know, we've been talking Turkey here for, I mean, close to 37 minutes. Sorry man, about first that. rule of podcasting, keep the, keep the phone down, but everybody got that Woodstock. <laughs> That's my theme song. <laughs> oh, man. The, there we go. Hit the power button. So, I mean, we've <laughs> we've talked turkey here for uh, almost, you know, 40 minutes. I do want to switch gears because, as you stated earlier, there's another fun thing that a lot of people, I, I, I think, kind of miss out on sometimes, and that's spring crappie fishing. And that is a huge huge thing right now uh, in in oh, this yeah. area yeah. the other thing that i mean i have yet to partake in being a bluegrass resident is the white bass run and 
this is the time of year where this stuff really starts heating up. I have not been out fishing yet this year, which is, you know, uh, yeah, right. Shame on you. I know sacrilege, um, but you guys both have. So, you know, my experiences, I can only speak to last year. What are you guys seeing in terms of crappie numbers, bass fishing, what's working, what's not working and things like that. Go ahead. Rich. I was out uh, yesterday, uh, socially distanced in <laughs> my own boat, uh, floating <laughs> alone by myself, uh, dipping some docks on a favorite lake. And uh, it was amazing the difference from the week before. The week before, I think I had water temperatures uh, maybe 51, 52 degrees. Yesterday, as I pulled off the lake, it was 67 wow. surface Ooh. temp. The, the, those few sunny days um, really, really cooked the surface of the water. And consequently, it brought the fish right up with it. And one of the things that I found was is they weren't necessarily just in against the docks. They were suspended over open water, but very shallow right under the surface. Oh, nice. Uh, so almost everything I caught mm. was uh, 18 inches to two foot deep under a bobber with just a small jig on. And uh, you couldn't load the live well right now if you're willing to get out. And that's <laughs> a perfect complement to the early morning turkey hunt is to go out in the afternoon and, uh, and spend some time in the boat. Nice, nice. Chris, what, what, what's been going on for you with fishing? Well, I am uh, I'm having a pretty good year so far. Um, I fish a private lake, though. I'm very blessed to fish a private lake and a private farm pond for the most part. There's a couple lakes I'd like to go hit, though, because um, I, I'm pretty confident that the crappie are really starting to turn on really well. That said... Um, I think I caught, uh, father-in-law and I were out for about two hours and we caught a little over 60 crappie and some bass and I lost basically the biggest freshwater fish of my life. Um, it was only a carp, but I don't care because they're <laughs> last. Um, so I tail hooked her and she pulled me underneath a dock, but, um, and of course you know what happens after that. So especially with eight pound test, but, uh, I have actually been fortunate enough so far to catch a fish Ohio bluegill, crappie, bass, and perch this year. I believe is a perch wow. twelve inches or thirteen uh, on a uh, private lake, not Lake Erie. Lake Erie's thirteen, isn't it? Uh, I'm not really sure. I have no idea. I say it's twelve, unless you're up at like Lake Erie or something. Then I think it goes to thirteen. But regardless, that I've I've not really done that uh very much so um i'm gonna that's a pretty go darn good year yeah yeah, yeah pretty, pretty solid man um i'm starting to considering kinda, mine yes <laughs> it, right well i'm blessed to live five minutes from one of those places and 16 or 17 from the other so um i uh I, i've noticed the crappie are are really doing well on jigs right now and just what rich said i think i'm about 18 inches deep but uh i really haven't gone much more than three foot deep this year um the water you know we've had a lot warmer temps than we're really used to i think so um but the bluegill and the bass are really starting to turn on the one thing i'd like to really do though um which most people have kind of i don't know i don't hear a lot about it anymore but i want to go catfishing really bad and catch some channel cats here in the early spring and not not have to wait until summer so but fishing has been good well, I mean, the channel cat spawning is, I mean, it's, it's getting close to that. Correct. I mean, it, 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 if I'm not mistaken, I mean, at least on Lake Erie, when, you know, they catch them by the boatload, it's, it's, you know, late, <clears throat> late May, early June. I mean, I'm sure someone can write in and let me know that I'm wrong about that uh, if you want to, but, uh, it's getting to be that time of year where those fish are starting to get a little bit more active too, and getting out of that winter slumber. And you yeah. know, again, another simple thing that you can go and do in the time of social isolation that we're in is go cast a line out and just let it sit. You know, yeah. you know, if, if, if you, if you're a fishing pole length away from somebody, you're socially distancing or at least that's what they told us down here when they gave us our, our guidelines for social distancing. It's like a fishing pole or a horse. Yeah. And to touch on that a little bit, have you guys been seeing the walleye they're pulling out this year in Erie? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, I have. It is insane. 
you know, it's funny because you get all these people that are like super greedy and they want their limits and it doesn't matter. And uh, the last few years anyways, I'm sure it's been going on much longer than that. But um, I spoke with a few charter captains and uh, lots of those guys. Um, the limit is 15 inches, I believe, and uh, or the legal size limit anyway. And um, they're throwing back 15 and a half and 16 inch fish and wow. that is translating into having really gorgeous fish the next year and they're i mean we went up there last fall and our average fish was 20 inches which is really really good but, oh yeah, uh, yeah it is. and that and that was in august that wasn't even during a good time that was during the garbage time to fish um, <laughs> up there in uh, ashtabula so um yeah, they're they're pulling some absolute hog nasties out of Erie right now. That's awesome to hear. And I mean, <clears throat> you know, realistically, again, we keep we keep referring back to this as uh, you know, the kind of weird time that we're in right now. But they just shut down river access to the Maumee River, uh, mm -hmm. all public access. So all those walleyes that are going up the Maumee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, there, there's. I mean, when it, it, it was being discouraged, whether whether that's official or not, I, I honestly don't. Know. Okay, good, good but deal. I, but I do know um, uh, non-resident uh, turkey hunting privileges and such have been suspended and suspended. My bad. <laughs> either state down here, so uh, those of you that might have been hoping to go out and score in uh, one of the border states. Uh, <clears throat> don't enjoy that luxury this year no no i mean uh th that that's that's kind of the reason uh that chris chris is uh talking the way that he is about about the turkey hunting coming up because i mean i mean not not to say anything uh, bad about any of the stuff that's going on i mean there's a lot of bad stuff but um <clears throat> i will say this the governor came on tv the other day at least for kentucky if you've already bought your tag and your license you can still come hunt However, you better be quarantining for 14 days when you get back. Oh, um, yeah, so uh, it should be real interesting to see who shows up uh, on opening morning. And if I see a lot of bluegrass, uh, a lot of bluegrass tags or a lot of Ohio tags from guys who bought early or not, um, you know, that that's that's the reality of right now. But the other reality is, is that, you know, fingers crossed, this is going to open back up at some point, and uh, hopefully, this doesn't run into deer season because I didn't buy my tax or my license for deer season <laughs> in Ohio yet. I I am one of those I'm one of those dirty non-resident hunters that comes into Ohio and uh, shoots deer, but uh, I feel that I'm still a Buckeye, so I'm allowed to do that. Right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, it's funny because before I started traveling out of state, I'd be like, man, they need to limit all this non-resident bullcrap. What are they doing? And then as I was in a parking lot out in Colorado, I had a gentleman thank me for coming out. And of course, I didn't even get to draw my bow or think about it uh, on an elk. But, um, you know, I thought, yeah, I donated like $763 to you guys. So I guess you kind of do owe me a thank you. But uh, it's it's funny. Um, you know, the non-residents, they, they help boost the economy in the areas and stuff and it's it, you know sometimes it stinks to have to compete with more people but um you know it's the way of the world it's it's what we're what we're dealing with so um you can come here and hunt if you want rick no well, thank you actually, um <laughs> i was going to say now don't quote me here but ohio is the same in the sense that if you already have your license and tag you can hunt right that is correct. From okay. from my understanding, it is. Okay, because they, they didn't even suspend it right away mm -hmm. like Kentucky did. Kentucky, um, I'd like to- Andy shut the gates on that one real quick. Yeah, he did. They, they just <laughs> shut it down. And then Ohio's like, well, you have 97 hours to purchase your tent. And it's like, <laughs> well, this isn't, anybody who wants to come now is going to come. So, um, you know, I, I wish we would have had the same courtesy because I would have bought all my friends license and tax right <laughs> <laughs> maybe next year maybe next year and then that and that's the thing uh with a lot of this and, and chris like you make up a good you made a good point regarding like hunting and maybe being a lot of people there 
I think it goes back to what we've been all been saying here. The number one way to kill a bird is scout. Get out there, put the miles in. It literally get a thermos of coffee, go to the top of a ridge on any piece of public land or you know any flat river bottom down, you know, on a on a piece of public property or wherever you may have around you and listen for birds. Like listen, walk, listen. That 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 is, you know, the bulk of my scouting is doing that just to ensure the fact that I can find where birds might be. If you can locate them somewhere, more than likely, if you can get a day where you think there might be a little less pressure or you find a bird that's roosted in an area that another guy might not, your chances go up exponentially for, you know, getting a bird you're putting in the miles. And that's what, you know, you ask number one thing that, that gets you a bird, putting in miles, getting, getting out there and in not only it just finding them, but enjoying everything else about it. Plus it's good scouting for deer season later in the year too. Cause you're going to find a lot of areas that a lot of guys might not look at necessarily as a deer area and only think, Oh, there's only turkeys there. Or, you're going to go find a deer area. Oh, there's no, there's no deer there. Well, there is. Cause I jumped five of them when I walked in. <laughs> yeah. I that and, uh, it, and the other, uh, fringe benefit of being out in the woods and wandering around there's there's still sheds lying out there yes. and we're also getting to mushroom time yes too. yes we so, are uh, uh yeah. we're gonna be uh we get a little bit more of this wet weather and then put some heat on top of it and uh it'll be prime picking for that as well that'll be excellent absolutely um yeah i was gonna say something else too um which i said in the last podcast but i'm gonna keep saying it um i was kind of feeling around uh wondering what rich thought when i asked about um you know what makes people what kind of changes the game for you or whatever what what makes somebody a better turkey killer or you know how can you get better and uh one of the things that i always preach to people um you know kind of hitting on what he said about how you really don't have to be great with a call if you can make a few sounds and you really don't have to make them well um, if you can read a turkey's body language and or, you know, language and kind of feel them out, um, that helps. But knowing when to talk and when to shut up, I think, is uh, so, so, so crucial because uh, so many people overcall. And I think that's one of those things that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, just kind of trips a switch and then they just stand there and gobble. And it's fun. You get to hear gobbling, but the turkey doesn't come in. He just stands there strutting and gobbling, and, um, you know, eventually he walks off, which is very, very depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when he goes across the property line that you no longer have permission to hunt. Uh, Yeah. That is terrible. Yeah. Well, um, we're almost at an hour, guys. So, uh I mean, concluding thoughts, uh, who wants to, who wants to go first? Guest, we'll let the guest go first. Well, thank yeah, you. You're welcome. <laughs> I, uh, I am this week. Um, we are, uh, getting ready for opening day. So I probably will go out and put a blind out on one of my favorite fields for the eventuality that I know is going to happen. It's going to rain sometime during <laughs> Turkey season. And, okay. and rather than sit in the house and wish I was out there, I can sit in the comfort of a blind, which is something I don't normally do. But um, finding a, a nice field that they like to be in when it's raining, uh, that's a bonus. Um, I will also then uh, probably be patterning my shotgun this week just to make sure uh, nothing's really changed with it and uh, make sure that my point of aim is is on, get my calls together, get everything uh uh, all tidied up and uh, hopefully 4.30 on the morning of the 20th, I'm going to be wandering in the woods and uh, uh, to enjoy another sunrise. Good deal. There's nothing like it, man. Um, so let me ask you this. With a blind in a field, do you try to stay just inside the woods or on the wood line? Or Yeah, you- I, I try to tuck in maybe uh, <clears throat> 10 yards or so. I, I'd gladly yield that extra shooting distance uh, for the sake of, of being in the cover. Yeah. rather than being like a bump on a log out in the middle of uh, of the field and but I do know guys that have done that and have done that successfully you know and 
some of that is dependent upon the amount of pressure that the birds get. Some of it's dependent on what you're actually faced with when you go to hunt. Um, but for me personally, I do like tucking back in into the wood line. I agree. Um, it's funny because when I first started hunting out of a blind, everybody always told me, oh, they don't pay any attention. And I've killed some in the middle of a field from a blind, but I've had more turkeys circumnavigate around than come in. Uh, and that actually goes for hens too. But for whatever reason, the hens seem to be uh, less leery. They don't really care as much, but um, I have them avoid me. And of course, you know, it's not, they're not 200 yards out. They're like at 100 yards. And you're like, I need like at least 40 to, to make a good, good shot here. And uh, they, they just stand out there and then, of course, walk off. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be doing the same. I've, I've patterned, I've sighted in and patterned my shotgun. Um, I think I'm going to put a blind up in a ditch line and try to maybe find some old Christmas trees or, or something to put around it. I don't really know because there's a little brush pile out there and uh, these turkeys are following this ditch line like it's their religion. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's as if Jesus told them to walk this way or something. So uh, I see them there every day. There's three strutters and like 13 hens, one of which is like a smoke phase hen, which is really cool. Um, so I'm hoping that I can either kill one or put a buddy on one. And, uh, other than that, going to be hitting the, the lakes and ponds and streams. Hopefully, uh, will, will, uh, stop trying to get the coronavirus and having trees fall in his yard <laughs> so that we could make it out and chase some musky or something. But, um, yeah, but, he, uh, he, uh, was going to invite me yesterday and, uh, uh, to do the musky thing and um, we got discussing his uh, current health situation and decided it probably would be best to avoid that uh, circumstance altogether so <laughs> I think you avoided a good time anyway I know I did because uh, after I talked to him he he ended up getting blown off the lake so oh. <laughs> <laughs> yesterday um, so yeah that's that's pretty much uh, I, I'll say I'd I'd say my concluding thought is um, this year when you're online, when you're in some forums or uh, at a, a check station in your state or, or whatever, um, you know, don't forget about your, your good natured wood, woodsmanship. If a guy shot a turkey at 10 yards, a hundred yards, whatever, if it's a Jake, uh, if it's a legal bird, you know, tell him congratulations. Don't tell him he should have waited. Don't tell him, you know, that he should have killed it with a bow or, you know, he's not a hunter because he killed it out of a blind or with decoys. Just tell the guy congratulations and say nice bird. If I could ever tell somebody anything, that's that's what I'd have to say. Because you see so much where people hassle others. And, uh, you know, rather than just automatically be a good person or a nice person, they end up saying, well, what'd you kill that for? Or, oh, well, that's not turkey hunting. You didn't kill that with a bow or you weren't running and gunning. Or, everybody has their own situations uh you know you don't know what it's like to be them so just tell them good job and if you can't handle that then move the hell on <laughs> <laughs> so a good advice good sound advice um concluding thought for me um i can't wait to get out <clears throat> this weekend i can't wait to get out next weekend and this is going to be a, a really fun hunt for me. This is going to where I'm hunting a place that I've never hunted before. It's a piece of public ground that <clears throat> I found per chance uh, through my bow shop, actually, of uh, asking a place to deer hunt. And it's a little bit of a drive, but, you know, it's going to be worth it in the long run for me. So concluding thoughts are if you're getting out, and you're hunting this hunting season for turkeys, be safe. Um, know your target. Know your target. Man, oh man. <clears throat> please, please, please look for beards. And if you're hunting with a buddy, make sure you have good muzzle control and you know where that um, gun muzzle is pointed or barrel, whatever. You know, there's, there's too many accidents. You know, you know, you hear about them on the news or whatever. From someone saying, I didn't know. 
you're shooting rounds that are different than normal rounds. You're doing a lot of things differently than what you would be doing most times when you're going hunting. Make sure you're safe. And obviously this year, if you're hunting with somebody else, keep six feet away from each other. It's not hard. We're, you know, we talked about drop back calling, do that, you know, just make sure you know where your targets are and happy hunting everybody. That that's, that's the big thing. It's, it's finally upon us and we're, you know, hearing the turkeys hammer and I could, I couldn't be more excited about it. Absolutely, man. Uh, thank you so much to, uh, Rich for coming on and we hope well, to- thanks for having me on and yeah. I'd like to like to throw a plug in there. If you have an opportunity to take somebody um, who's not been exposed to turkey hunting, uh, particularly younger people, um, make the effort, make the extra effort, make yeah. the invitation. You never know when somebody uh, who's a non-hunter might might take you up on that and go out and become hooked like the rest of us uh, seriously are. <laughs> You could change somebody's life, and I, I don't know whether to say it for the better or for the worse, because they may get divorced or they may be happy. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Rich, for coming on. We want to pester you about coming on again. Uh, we have fishing to talk about. Uh, we'll have a deer season episode, I'm sure. So uh, we got a lot of good stuff coming from this guy, and we're really, really grateful that he came in here and gave us his time. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Dad. I appreciate it too. So, all right, guys, that uh, concludes another episode of Fueled by the Outdoors. Again, uh, if you can find us online, follow and subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, and most major podcasting platforms. Hopefully you all have a good turkey season, and we'll hear from you later.